maybe just as I begin, I, I wanted to say that I have some news. I have some uh, great news. In fact, it's so great that uh, I just rejoice. And the news is this. Paul said in Romans 1, he said, I am not ashamed of the what? The gospel. And the gospel itself is good news. It's the best news. It's the only news. Believe me, it's better than CNN. Uh, it's better than Fox News, and uh, it's better than any news that's coming out on any media outlet. It is the greatest news in all of the world. And it's not just news, it's good news, and really, it's God's news. Take your Bible and open it to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to be briefer today, obviously, but because you'll hear the gospel, the good news in the testimonies today, but look over in Romans 1, and I really want to focus just on one truth today. Paul said, and I'll pick it up in Romans 1, and I'll pick it up in verse 15. Paul said, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also uh, to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let me pray and then we'll dive in. Father, just fall on this place. Fall on our own people. Encourage the believer. Wake up even the unbeliever. Father, who may think they're a believer, but may it be that they're resting on this news and this news alone. So we're totally dependent upon you. Accomplish your will and work through this short message as well as the wonderful testimonies. And we'll give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Paul is not ashamed. And we've been asking at least in the last couple weeks, why is he not ashamed? And then what you have in Romans 1, uh, 16 through 17 is three marvelous statements that answer why he's not ashamed. I mean, he's so bold that he would be buried under a pile of rocks at one place that he preached the gospel. He got up from under those rocks and went and preached the gospel again. So I think we know that he's not ashamed in many nights and dangers and from rivers and robbers and, and from all different assortment of trials, but he's not ashamed, he's not deterred, and I don't think we ought to be ashamed either. Now what the text gives us then in 16 and 17 is three marvelous statements that answer why he's not ashamed of the gospel. 
The first one is because the gospel is the proclamation of good news. That word gospel is the Greek word, if you must know it, euangelion, and it just is the good news. So he's not ashamed because of the good news of the gospel. The gospel is the good news, it's the best news. Then secondly, not only is it a proclamation of the good news, but the gospel is a demonstration of God's power. He said in 16, for it, the gospel, is the power of God in this sense, his power is all over, but here it's for salvation. It is the power of God in that good news to take a sinner who is spiritually dead, enslaved to sin, in other words, not finding any victory over it, bound for hell, and God's power is released in the good news of the gospel preached, and it delivers salvation. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed. It's the proclamation of the good news. I'm not ashamed. For in that gospel shared and preached, it is the demonstration of God's power. And I bring you here thirdly, because the gospel is the revelation of God's righteousness. Look again at verse 17. And I don't want to pass over this. And dads, I want to ask you if you understand this. And I'm not saying you don't, but you've got to understand this. And mothers, you have to understand this very phrase. Look at the text. Put your eyes in it in verse 17. For in it, of course, the gospel. You say, why is it the gospel? Well, because he said in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel. He said in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And why? Because in it, verse 17, underline this, it's one of the greatest statements in all of the Bible. I'd probably say maybe the greatest statement in all the Bible, but if I say the greatest statement in all of the Bible uh, 10 times a year, which I probably think every passage is so great, you might think, well, gosh, they're all the greatest, and it would be true. But that statement, cast your eyes on it again, for in it, the gospel, it is the righteousness of God. So here's Paul's flow. Here's his logic. I think you can see it. The reason is that Paul is not ashamed is because the gospel is the good news. The reason that the gospel is the good news is because it's the power of God unto salvation, okay? And the reason that it's the power of God for salvation is because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. What exactly is the righteousness of God. What is that phrase? In fact, it's the phrase that Luther used in response of his testimony of salvation because he never quite understood that phrase. He was burdened by that phrase. He was in, he was in a monastery, he was a monk, 
and he's climbing stairs, going through penance, um, saying his prayers, all that, but he couldn't come clear on that statement. He saw that statement as a means of God's justice that was angry with him. That's how he understood the righteousness of God. What is it? Let me just tell you what it is. Righteousness or the righteousness of God is, let me just say, it's a divine attribute. You think of God's love and attribute. You think of his mercy and attribute. You think of uh, his forgiveness. Those are characteristics of God. Well, very well, the righteousness of God is an attribute of God. And to put it succinctly, this is what it means out of the word of God, that God is morally and ethically right. Or you could say it this way, God does what is right. To put it together, righteousness is his holy and perfect character. Now, to be sure, it's his justice as well. It's his justice because he's always right. He's morally perfect. He's ethically perfect. He's good. It's bound up in who God is. You don't make God righteous. He is righteous. And inside the life of us before salvation, the Bible says in, clearly in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous. So he's righteous, he's just, but the righteousness of God is also a gift of God. It's a gift that he gives to sinners through his son. It is a, a righteousness, follow the track here of this. And children, if you're hearing my voice, you have to understand this because this is the gospel. And so this righteousness that he gives, he does so through his son. It is a righteousness revealed by sinners through faith. It's a righteousness, let me say it this way, that justifies you before a holy God. Maybe you know the statement by heart, but if not, write it down. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be, what? Sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, here's the phrase, we might become the what? The righteousness of God. It's a wonderful statement. For our sake, if you're a believer here, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. God made, this is good news, Christ to be sin. What do you mean? Well, he made him to be sin, even though he was without sin, he took the penalty, he didn't become a sinner, but he bore the weight and the penalty and the wrath that you and I deserved so that we might become 
the righteousness of God. Through Christ, God Almighty forgives our sin in Christ's death on the cross. And so the sinless Savior dies so that the wicked can become righteous. As I said, Christ didn't become a sinner, but he was, here's the technical word, he was counted as a sinner, reckoned as a sinner, so that we who believe would be counted and reckoned as righteousness. It's what the reformers call, and we've spoken on this before, the great exchange. That when you come to Christ, even as you meet the people, eight of them today, they are a miracle of God. Does God do miracles today? Of course he does. He redeems sinners. And so when they came to Christ, God took their sin and then he gave us his righteousness. And that, that's what happened. He removed it by the work of Christ on the cross and then he added righteousness into our account. But I have a question for you today. Maybe this pertains to you as you're listening. It is the greatest question that probably could be asked to anybody is how, how is that righteousness appropriated to you? Children, how does that description where Christ takes my sin and then he gives me the righteousness, not only of God, but of Christ, how does it become yours? I mean, how do you, how do you get this? Uh, maybe that's what I'm saying. What is the instrument that God has set up for you, maybe for the sake of a word, to close with Christ? How does anybody become a believer? How do you move from being wicked to righteous? How do you go from a sinner to a saint? How do you go from being dead in sin to being born again? And you know this, beloved, but I'll say it again. You can't buy this good news. You can't in terms of this righteousness, earn it. Children, by being good, that doesn't give you this great news of the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God doesn't come through attendance. It doesn't come through baptism, even though we'll celebrate that today. It doesn't come through tithing. It doesn't come through community involvement. The righteousness of God can't come to you even by, maybe politically correct, by loving everyone. That doesn't make anybody a believer. You say, well, how then does it become mine? Look at the text. It's crystal clear. Verse 16. It says... It is the power, the gospel of salvation. Here it is. To everyone who, what? Believes. To everyone, could be you today, 
who cries out in faith to God. In fact, let me just remind you, look back at chapter 3 in verse 22. He's going to speak of this righteousness. You can underline this one. Romans 3.22. It says here, in fact, if you go back to 21, but now the righteousness of God, it's been revealed, it's been manifested, but watch this, apart from the law. In other words, apart from works, although the law and prophets spoke of it. Then he says in 3.22, the righteousness of God through Here it is, faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And so he's linking faith and he's linking their belief. Belief, of course, is just simply the verb. Faith is the noun. They're parallel thoughts. It's faith. It's, It's belief. That's the instrument of God. In fact, look at Romans 3, 26. He says it was to show, that would be speaking of Christ's death, 326, at the present time, so that he, God, might be just and justifier of the one who has, what? Faith in Jesus. The instrument bound up in the word of God, both New Testament all the way back to the Old Testament in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as, what? Righteousness. It's the same. People were saved in the Old Testament the same way they're saved in the New Testament. They were saved in the Old Testament by trusting in the promises of God and the revealed Messiah. They look forward to that. We're saved by trusting in God and the promises of Jesus Christ and the work of Christ. We look back at the cross. In fact, go over to chapter 4 of Romans. It says the one who does not work, and that's in Romans 4, 5, the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies, that's the idea of being declared righteous, it's who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as what? Righteousness. It's enough to say to you that righteousness, if, if you were looking at the reformers, righteousness is sola, what? Fide. It is by faith alone, as it says in Romans, to everyone who believes. Let me be clear here. Human beings are not made righteous on the basis of doing, but on the basis of believing. And maybe I should just stop and say, have you believed? You, not your parents, not your grandparents. You might have a great dad, praise God. You're going to hear in the baptismal waters, some of the families were raised in great homes and in God's sovereignty, it wasn't until high school or motherhood, but none of us are saved by our doing. We're saved on the basis of believing. God's righteousness then is a gift given to us, declaring sinners 
to be in the right before him by faith in Christ. Maybe another way to say it, the righteousness of God or being justified is the declaration of not guilty. Now, it's more than that. But if you're in Christ this morning, you're not guilty because he justified you. He removed your sin. He put into your account the righteousness of God. Let me show you a great text. Look over in the book of Galatians for a moment, will you? This is a a masterful statement by the Apostle Paul, and you know a little of his background possibly, but in Galatians chapter two, look at verse 16, and by the way, you know I just, if I stopped as you're turning there, it's like music to my ears to hear pages being turned. You say, why is that music to your ears? I don't think a lot of people even bring their Bible. Honestly. But I'm glad you bring your Bible because I'm in the Bible and you need to know where I'm going. So thank you for being a blessing to me. Look at Galatians 2.16. Paul says, you know this, he says, that a person, watch this, is not justified, is not made righteous by works of the law Here it's so clear. But through faith in what? Christ. So that we who have believed in Christ, in order to be made righteous or justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. In other words, it's not doing good works. It's Christ. So, Let me clarify this for the high schoolers, for the adults or grandparents. Faith then, don't miss this, is the instrument, not the cause of righteousness. Thank you, okay? It's the instrument. You say, well, Scott, what do you mean by that? It just means that You're not, you know this, you're not saved because of your faith. You're not saved by walking forward. You're not saved in the baptismal waters, okay? You're saved by your faith in a direct object, excuse the grammar, in the person of Christ That is our righteousness and justification. You say, well, Scott, why? Why is it that way? I mean, it's a great question. Why is it by faith? Why did he set it up that it's not works? It's not tithing. It's not building buildings. It's not doing good works. And some of those things flow out of the root of salvation, but why did he set it up that it's faith? I'll show you directly. Look in your Bible over at Romans chapter four. In Romans, I have to go back there too as you're turning. 
But in Romans chapter 4, here's why. It says in Romans chapter 4, excuse me, I'm down in verse, um, I think, is it 16? Let me just check. Yes, 416. That is why, listen to Paul's argument, it depends on faith, comma, in order that the promise It says, in order that the promise may rest on what? Grace. So what do you mean that it might? Because when you express faith in Christ, there's none of you in that. It's by grace, this is God's word, in order that the promise of righteousness and justification may rest on his grace. And so God gets the glory in your salvation, right? Amen? There's nothing we can do about it. You say, well, I express faith, yes. I walk forward, yes. I pray to receive Christ, yes. But grace, uh, you've been saved by grace through what? Faith. And that faith is a what? It's a gift he gives to you. And so here, God did not, I'm reading from the Heidelberg Catechism. He did not ordain faith, listen, to be the instrument of justification because of some peculiar virtue in faith. No, our faith, no. But because faith, it says, is self-emptying and it has no merit in itself. I pray that you get that. The instrument is faith, but faith, as it says there, is ultimately self-emptying, and it has no merit in itself. You say, well, what does faith even mean? Here's what faith means. Faith means when you come to Christ, you lose all your own righteousness. In fact, you're bankrupt. You got nothing. Because once you see how holy he is, and then to know that it just takes one sin in James 2.10 to condemn you, one thing's for sure. When you come in saving faith, you lose your own righteousness. Faith is actually humility. In other words, it's the understanding that we have nothing to offer God. What faith is, is a total emptiness of all that is within us. I mean, listen, I can't share my testimony or yours, but this is the common denominator. When you bow your knee, you realize you got no other option. You realize that you've sinned. You realize that that sin will condemn you and that God is just. And so what happens then is you're empty of everything because you realize in Romans 3.10, there is none, what? Righteous, no, not one. So you may even be a good person in here according to the world. But listen, you were conceived in sin And then you became a sinner by choice as all the world has sinned. Romans 3.23, for all have what? 
sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. Part of his glory is his righteousness. All it takes is one sin. So what faith is, beloved, is utter despair of everything except Christ. What faith does is make the sinner conscious of his or her desperate condition, your tragic judgment upon him. I mean, this is the battle of our world today. Some of our politicians think people are good and that there's goodness in them. What faith does is it makes you recognize who he is. Faith is not merit. It is a realizing, if you will, of my demerit. Faith looks away from self and it looks to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you come to saving faith in him? Listen, this is the greatest news in all of the world. And you must place your faith in him. And you must come to him if some of you young people are waiting for a more opportune time, like I did, then just realize as you wait for another opportune time, you are presently judged by the holiness of God. And so he's just, he's righteous, but he would bid you to look to the cross, look to the Lord Jesus Christ, amen.